I V M. We're Team Splainer. Welcome to an all-new episode of Press Decode, a weekly podcast where we take Splainer's mission to declutter the news one step further. Check out our newsletter for more stories and follow us at Splainer Inn to keep up with all the fun things we plan for our Splainer fam. So sit back, relax, and don't let the news give you the blues. I'm Sarah, your host for the day, and we have a full house with both Vagda and Prafulla. As always, we have three segments for you. For our big story, we're looking at that slap that was heard around the world. Yep, you know the one. In our food for thought segment, we're sticking to the realm of the Oscars and talking about the Indian entry to the Academy Awards, writing with fire. And then in our final segment, we will be roasting and toasting our fave and least fave items. Okay, so now on to our big story for the week. Unless you've been living under a rock, I'm assuming you've heard of Will Smith smacking comedian Chris Rock on stage for making a GI Jane joke about his wife Jada Pinkett. Rock said, "Jada can't wait for GI Jane too," referring to her shaved head. This was especially insensitive because Pinkett has been open about her hair loss due to alopecia, though it is not clear if Rock knew about it. Smith first offered a non-apology of sorts during his acceptance speech, and then directly apologized to Rock. In a public Instagram post, the fallout has been fairly minor. However, for the parties directly involved, Rock has declined to press charges, and the Academy's initial tweet said it does not condone violence of any form. But later issued a statement condemning the actions of Mr. Smith and kickstarted a formal review around the incident. Sources inside the Academy said its members had strongly considered removing Smith from the ceremony, but decision makers were not able to coordinate in time to take a call. Now there has been discourse and counter discourse and some counter counter discourse and of course the large threads of yarn on Twitter. Is it toxic masculinity? Is it racism when they're both black artists or is it just an error of judgment? Well, there's a lot, but I got to ask, like both Vagda and Prafulla, what has been the most outrageous hot take that you guys have come across? I will start, just so that you don't take it, because the most brilliantly outrageous take. There was a bizarre connection about a supposed Will Smith doctrine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Are you confused? Allow me to explain in brief. It drew a connection between the two because of a mismatch in quantums of violent reactions. So just like a uh, Smith went and smacked, Putin went and invaded. Oh yeah, my favorite is oh Will Smith is an abuser, and the other is Jada Smith is an abuser. Why? Because Will got up and slapped. Chris Rock because he saw Jada's reaction, so people were like, "Oh, you know, he's gonna have a hard time when he goes home if he doesn't do anything." And in his acceptance speech, Will Smith said, "You know, love made me do it." And then everybody just jumped on it and said, "You know, I was a domestic violence, or my mother was a domestic violence victim, and this really triggered me." And you know, just mm. nice. nice. One that I liked and I thought it really summed up everything was this user. Jim Caddick on Twitter. He said, "I've seen so many completely opposite opinions on my timeline about the slap that I have officially concluded that Chris is wrong, Will is wrong, <laughs> Jada is wrong, Oscars are wrong, comedy is wrong, violence is wrong, and everyone on Twitter is wrong." Oh, everyone on Twitter is always correct. Excuse me. That is also my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> 
Excuse me, everyone on Twitter is always correct. Okay then, Sara. To understand why everyone was bemoaning the imminent Oscars takes last night, first we have to define what Twitter is in 2022. It's a fandom app for current events. The users on there don't have anything in common other than an increasingly pathological need to consume either news as content or content as news. I'm moving on swiftly beyond that scathing attack. I am going to link to this wonderfully amusing yet painful read about the sheer range of hot takes that have emerged over the last couple of days. I insist that each one of you have to have to have to read it. It is amazing. But beyond all the hot takes, honestly, do you guys what do you guys have to say about this insane incident that has truly taken the internet by a storm, especially since we as Indian women are all too familiar with this whole idea of using violence to protect women and our honor and safety and what not of course after saying that there are hundreds and thousands of takes on twitter you ask us for our take very nice of course we're on a podcast guys <laughs> okay so my first thoughts were what what the hell this can't be true of course this is staged but like cuz cuz how is this how is this truly happening it can't be real apparently it wasn't staged my second thought was violence is just not okay man like words are enough to show you stand up for your wife and that's it and third why did she need protection mm. she sat right there she could have done something if she wanted to she rolled her eyes and that was her reaction you know anyway this whole protector complex you know toxic masculinity and all which will smith only laminated framed and hung on the wall with his defense where he took on the role of protecting his family and said love makes you do crazy things that's like straight out of kabir singh's handbook speaking of which i made the mistake of watching the og arjun reddy back i think like a year after it came out i think 2019 and <laughs> you recovered no one second i want to know why you even picked it up i don't know these people there was so much hype around it and people wouldn't so mm. i'm infamous for not watching films but then telugu films so cousins will then say hey you have to watch this no no you have to watch this so sometimes i give in no. and i have to say no, but again i ask yeah have you recovered <laughs> no it remind so first of all it took me 3 days to complete the film and it also reminded me of just why i don't watch telugu movies valid mm. yeah so you know and then they went ahead and remade it for a much wider audience which i still don't understand why <laughs> but yeah i guess that's just it no this hyper masculinity is something that is so pervasive it's nauseating and i've repeatedly heard people say that you know if a man hasn't reacted aggressively to a situation that it is weird and you know then they make all sorts of assumptions mm. um and that's also a problem i think because we've been so conditioned by films for so long that most of us will have such warped ideas of how a man should act The first thing that popped into my head when I thought toxic masculinity was mard ko dard nahi hota and that was also <laughs> of course like the, yeah and coincidentally that was also the first hit on google when i looked up toxic masculinity in bollywood how oh. <laughs> hmm. and that along with amitabh bachchan's angry young man era apparently an angry hero covered in the blood of his enemies was just the change that the film industry needed after years of romantic heroes hmm. one writer called them lover boys who run around trees so you know that mindset is clearly still there 
And, you know, I love a good action film and I'd prefer one over a rom-com any day. But the problem with a lot of action films, especially now, I think, is that it comes at the expense of the woman in the film. It's either a mother or a sister or a love interest. And these women always need to be avenged or retrieved from a kidnapper. And uh, I came across Sauraja uh, Chakravarti's newsletter, Alternate Take, where she writes about how women in Indian cinema are written into roles of the helpless damsel in distress. Uh, We all know the sort of scene, right? The villain is restraining the heroine and she tries to fight back. Only she's just flailing about and maybe hits him in the shoulder or face and doesn't do much damage. He barely moves. And... uh, much that, like Chris Rock did not move. <laughs> amazing core strength, by the way. Or, or it was a very weak slap, one of the two. Or, but the other option for the heroine is, you know, to girl boss up and bite the guy or kick him in the crotch and then run away. But even that escape doesn't last for a, more than a couple of minutes. Uh, in the same newsletter, Chakravarti writes about the fact that the independent woman trope, uh, com- you know, and how it compares characters in the same movie. So she compared Jaya Bachchan's character and Vasanti in Shole. Jaya Bachchan's character is from the word go helpless just because she's been unfortunate enough to have been widowed. And Vasanti is self-sufficient, but she has to then comply to the villain's demands to save Viru. And this is directly from the newsletter. Chakravarti writes, However, her bloodied feet and determination to save her lover is just not enough. Dharmendra is saved by his friend Jay, who lays down his life for him and his lady love. Yes, a woman can try to save a life, but that is never enough. It needs masculine aggression to save life, which is out. Mm. And, you know, that's my biggest issue, I think, with the film industry, the way it frames protection and ownership to say that, you know, our films and our heroes have major savior complexes is an understatement and not just women there's so many people who need saving women the elderly children the less fortunate and only one man can save them and this is of course yeah because it's the first uh, example that popped into my head was Dabang but there's also Kabir Singh or RRR and there's so many others and which is just the kind of thing that has been drilled into the heads of so many men right so you're the man of the house or the man in the relationship. You need to protect your bandi. Otherwise, you're just not man enough. Or the man you in the country. Or man yeah. of the country. Or man saving the country. Now, and that brings uh-huh. me to what uh-huh. I want to talk about, which is that art doesn't just uh, imitate life. Life imitate arts too. And that's clearly the case in our culture and resultantly our politics. What? I still need a minute for that brilliant segue. <laughs> yes. Stunning. <laughs> So my first thought, obviously, when you talk about mas- toxic masculinity is not just Kabir Singh. It is somebody with a chappan inch ki chhati, mm. whose chest girth has been a constant in our political discourse. Symbolic of that aggressive alpha male who can protect the nation. <laughs> that our prime minister has a chappan inch ki chhati has been a constant show of appreciation by his groupies, whether it was after you know, he won Gujarat elections in 2007 or when he destroyed terrorist hideouts in Pakistan. Yes, he personally Personally, destroyed Yes, yes. Personally. Yes. Funnily enough, I found a 2014 business standard piece that I will link in the description that compared the 56-inch claim to chest girths of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Kali and Hulk Hogan. (laughs) 
कोई बीजेपी को बताओ यार नेशन बिल्डिंग करना है बॉडी बिल्डिंग नहीं करना है दिस इज वाई जर्नलिस्ट कंपेयर चेस्ट गर्ट्स Also, yes. can I just say how weird a word "girth" is? I will just let you all sit in that. Okay. Moving on swiftly. Now, other than this literal claim to manliness, we see that protector complex even in our government programs, schemes, and campaigns. Look at 2015 Beti Bachao Beti Padhao campaign. It advocates for protecting and educating girls rather than their empowerment. Um, I mean, it came in the context of female infanticide and feticide, but When empower करोगे तो फिर protector क्या करेगा Yeah, the girl is then relegated to a subordinate member of the household and somebody who needs protection all the time. And then there's UP with its anti-Romeo squads launched in 2017. Um, uh, these squads were made up of plain clothes policemen and vigilante uh, civilians who are dispatched to protect women. which in most cases ended up in nothing but harassing young couples who were found in um, public spaces together just another effort in limiting women's re- freedom by indulging in moral policing so consensual relationships were totally thrown out of the window and in society you see it play out even more clearly in fueling hindutva protecting hindu women from marrying muslim men love jihad is exactly this you forget women have agency and can express what they want we don't just have this in political speeches we also have the police security establishment and even courts going out of their way to prove women's lack of agency look at the hadia case the national investigative agency nia said that hadia's marriage to her muslim husband was out of indoctrination and psychological kidnapping whatever that means and the kerala high court handed over hadia's custody to her father arguing that as per indian tradition the custody of an unmarried daughter is with the parents until she is properly married custody mm-hmm. excuse me custody so we are saying that an adult woman is either in custody of her husband or of her parents i don't even have to make a point anymore cuz like the court has done it for me anyway when we did research on these apps that auctioned off muslim women I remember reading one great article from 2019 talking about this anxious hindutva masculinity in the EPW. I will link it in the description for you to check it out. It really really hits home. On that extremely personal note, we come to the end of our first segment. We will be right back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. We're Team Splainer and make sure you follow us at Splainer Inn on Instagram and Twitter to keep up with the Splainer fam. In today's Food for Thought, we're talking about India's first ever nomination at the Oscars in the documentary feature category for the movie Writing with Fire. Uh, though the movie failed to win the Oscar, it catapulted a grassroots news organization called Khabar Lehria to the global stage. So for those of you who don't know, Khabar Lehria, which literally translates to "wave of news," is a news portal from the Hindi heartland. It started in two thousand two as a weekly newspaper in Chitrakoot, Uttar Pradesh, but was primarily intended as a literacy project for women. The aim was simple: to bring together women from the most marginalized community, Dalit, Adivasi, and Muslim, and train them to produce news 
rather than just consume it passively. They published articles not just in Hindi, but in a variety of local dialects. Khabar Rehria has since trained 500 journalists over its 20 years. To this day, its content is wholly written, edited and distributed by women. In 2016, the organization went entirely online to take advantage of the smartphone revolution that lowered costs of publishing and actually hugely, hugely extended its reach. If it isn't already clear, their work is by far the best example of hyperlocal journalism that you can ever see. Their reporters cover everything from, you know, stall ration programs to local corruption to gender and caste violence. And they basically just focus on telling stories that matter the most to the people they cover. So it isn't about what sells. It's they know their audience and they know it better than anybody else. So now this extremely fascinating, interesting organization came a film to the organization, came a filmmaker duo, a couple named Rintu Thomas and Shushmit Ghost, who made the documentary. Thomas discovered KL via a Facebook photo and the two then contacted KL and they were invited to attend a team meeting, which happened to be the same one where they were like fully discussing their shift to digital. So this is back in 2016, which is when they began filming as well. And they stayed embedded with the organization for five years, all the way up to the 2019 Lok Sabha elections. So the entire movie was shot with like the least amount of equipment possible. So it was as natural per se with just the couple and a cinematographer as part of the team. And they they went in, in and out of their houses and on their stories and everything. They decided to center, like artistically, they decided to center the film on three Dalit women reporters, Meera Devi, Shamkali Devi and Sunita Prajapati. And they followed them as they worked. So by 2021, the film was ready and it went around the film festival circuits across the world and was celebrated everywhere. But, and I mean, eventually, like we know, it made it to the Oscars. But just about a week before the ceremony, Kavarleria made public its discontentment with the documentary. They view their mission as giving voice to the marginalized and demanding accountability from those in power, but contend that the film frames their work within an anti-BJP narrative, which doesn't really do justice either to their vision or work. Initially, Thomas and Ghosh said, Kavarleria's statement is an acknowledgement of the fractured and complex times we are in. While their statement is deeply disappointing to us, we remain committed supporters of their mission, work, and onward journey. And later, they owed the political narrative purely to the timing of the film, considering it was to the run-up of the elections, etc. But here's the deal. I don't necessarily understand, even for myself, what the crux of the problem is, okay? While on the one hand, yes, there is clear unfairness in power structures at play when filmmakers come from outside and, you know, shoot a grassroots organization like this. But it's also undeniable that documentary filmmaking itself in India, especially one that is even moderately political, will sooner or later run into some trouble. So I think it's just like a lot of gray areas that I haven't fully wrapped my head around. So I think I think we never we can never really understand or wrap our heads around the problem until we see what the purpose of the film is. It's a documentary and documentaries from what I know and I have read, are films that are supposed to give us a perspective of like a fly on the wall, you know? The point is to be completely objective and simply to record the reality rather than taking any sort of stake into in what's happening and what the circumstances and what the outcome might be. So, but what is this completely objective thing? Can anybody be completely objective? No matter how hard they try, it's extremely difficult for most filmmakers to 
objectively capture reality in the process of filming they become more and more familiar with characters and their subjects and draw conclusions of their own and then biases start to appear i would argue it's not even extremely it's completely impossible it's just about limiting as much as possible right your lived experiences will definitely show yeah they will and this is closely linked to the problem of the gaze which is very much entwined with power who has the power to determine the narrative in this case liberal intellectual filmmakers the filmmaker rintu thomas said clearly that the power equation is never equal between a filmmaker and their protagonists they needed to hear from us very clearly that we were not interested in framing this as a victim story neither was it going to be some patronizing superheroine narrative we didn't know what our story was going to be but we knew that we were interested in them as relatable ordinary women with an extraordinary spirit but then kabarleria in their statement said we have not as the film would have one believe been able to carry our cast identities on our sleeves with bravado and humor have had to be discreet often fearful and of course how their 20 years of their grassroots work was presented in an anti bjp narrative which is far from truth so some scholars of documentary filmmaking would argue exactly what is what sara said you know that looking for objectivity is a futile endeavor because it's just not it's just not possible but then does that that makes me think that it is it then is documentary filmmaking a futile exercise in itself you're trying to get to the truth but the truth yeah, is affected by your biases but i don't think it's futile it's i think it, what is needed is that if you go in with the knowledge of who is behind the camera you'll be fine look up the people who make what you watch and you'll be better with separating the grain from the chaff i think and secondly i'm glad that khabarleria put out a statement about how they feel about the film if they didn't put it out i wouldn't know that it's not really as black and white as the movie puts it out you know Hmm. and you know turns out the docu film industry isn't all black and white either because especially in india i've read that documentary filmmakers have to jump through plenty of hoops to get their films off the ground because obviously the first thing that we think of is the powers to be like uh, khabar lahariya says about their caste identities um and how that is pro- uh, portrayed in the film right uh, similarly uh, supporters of the filmmakers have said that the organization might have wanted to with the statement distance themselves you know at least the management wanted to distance itself from making any broad political statements given the timing of the oscars and you know the up elections which their supporters said you know came pretty much one after the other and um, i'm not trying to make any sweeping statements about any parties in particular but in a similar vein filmmakers especially documentary producers and directors have since the last year been speaking out about how the cinematograph uh, cinematograph amendment affects their films distribution as well because some of their films have ne- already don't see light of day and with you know all the recertification and everything that the amendment brings in uh, it's going to just get more difficult and for an industry that is so unstable in these terms their concerns you know seem valid to me according to a uh, renowned filmmaker anand patwardhan films might receive critical acclaim or even make it to an international film festival but the chances of a wider audience actually seeing the film and chances of um the audience that it is meant for actually seeing the film yeah so writing with fire has still never released in india and khabarleria yeah, exactly. said they actually saw the final final version of it very very recently which is how their statement came now mm. oh. they only saw rough edits 
Yeah, so in that same vein, like what uh, Anand Patwardhan says that, uh, uh, you know, almost all film festivals have this major focus on selling and buying. And so you have commissioning editors from a few Western well-off countries that gather together in a small group. And then they basically vet the possible subjects and ways of filmmaking. Filmmakers play the game because the only way they can raise money is to prepare a five-minute piece that will attract the commissioning editor, which basically means that filmmakers then have to resort to creating documentaries that outside mostly Western audiences or uh, critics will uh, like in order to receive the funding to make uh, films they want to make because there just isn't any resources in the country. A mint launch piece from last week says that several independent filmmakers are also claiming that their foreign funding is being withheld and they don't know why. Currently, to add to all this, currently there is the Film India Foundation for the Arts, the Public Service Broadcasting Trust and Films Division. But these are the only three that provide funding for independent films. Yes, they do have an archive on YouTube where you can go and watch the films, but it's not very extensive and you know having an archive isn't much by a long shot when you could be reaching audiences through screenings right uh shwetab singh who is the producer for award winning ibaleu says breaking into ott also is very difficult because streaming platforms would rather invest in formulaic films that are quote unquote bankable which you know Ironic, given how much money and time Netflix has wasted on that Bahubali prequel. But, you know, I'm no expert, so I wouldn't. <laughs> of course. We're totally not attacking Telugu films to the entirety of this episode. On that note, we come to the end of this segment. We will be back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. Welcome back to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. It's time for our final segment this week, Roast or Toast. Profula, the stage is yours. So recently, though, there's a customer service app called TDO. And recently, they surveyed over 1,191 people to see if there is a market for AI in people's love lives in the future. Because there are... so, And I found out about this also... from this article, there are apparently 1,500 dating apps and websites operating worldwide at the moment. I had no idea. And this market is projected... Wait, does this account for Indian marriage type thingies also? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, so you think that's a separate market? I think so, yeah. Don't ask me why and how I know, but I know there are a lot. (laughs) And how there are very specific niches of this. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, in Indian matrimonial has to be specific, don't you know? Mm. Mm. But yeah, there is apparently a projected uh, reach for this market at $9.2 billion by 2025. So researchers are now training AI to sense red flags in your relationships because... And when this uh, AI will be ready, it might be able to tell you that it's time to break up with your significant other, which it will then base off your messages, voice notes, and even video or motion capture to read body language. So it is snooping on you to tell you, hey, it's time to uh, say bye. One second, why is snooping on me to tell me or is it snooping on my uh, person I'm dating? I'm assuming this is on your phone. So like the messages you are sending based off the messages and voice notes you are sending them, whether mm. it's time to break up. So obviously this... So what is this AI? Is this a is this a therapist? I would 
honestly, the people that they surveyed might just need a therapist. And I will tell you why. Because the AI is far from complete. But of the people that they surveyed, 7% said they would end things immediately if the AI told them to. Wow, that's a lot of a lot of trust. Yes. And then 48% more said that they would keep an eye out for red flags following this advice. And 45% more said they wouldn't take any advice from the AI with the caveat that they really liked the person that they were dating. Okay. And we thought so dating is so bad. So this is that group chat where we're like telling someone like, oh my God, that person's not great, but like creepier. Already there, yeah. I'm just like, why does somebody else have so many opinions? But now it's yeah, not even a person. computer have an opinion about me? Yeah. Like, of course. Wow. Okay. okay. I have a fave item this week, but it is the best news from the metaverse. <laughs> Dilir Mendy became the first Indian to buy real estate on the Indian metaverse platform Party Night. Ooh. And he has named it, surprise, surprise, <laughs> Bulle Bulle Land. <laughs> You get to do it, Vagda. I can't. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so, I mean, Vagda was basically doing balle balle. The plan is to hold concerts, events, movie screenings, and sell NFTs, all of which will be suitably balle balle. No doubt. <laughs> Man, I can't believe it. All it took was some tunak tunak to finally make me a crypto bro. I am so invested. It's not funny. Like... Thanks, Dilair Mendy. You're truly the real one. No, I think I think there will be some entry uh, requirement in Balle Balle Land. They'll ask you, especially if you're a Malayali Christian, if you can uh-huh. recite any of his songs properly. Hey, I can do Tanak Tanak, but let's 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 hear some. <laughs> uh, moving on, swift. Wait, so on Twitter, somebody said Dilair Mendy was already in the metaverse in the '90s. Look at the video <laughs> for Tanak Tanak. <laughs> That is too funny, man. <laughs> that is actually very accurate. Okay, so we'll put that yeah. in the description as well. You should check it out. He's the real one, yaar. 2 a.m. at parties, any a.m. in the metaverse. News dress, <laughs> bale baleing it up, yaar. My favorite this week is this clip of a 13-year-old Dalit boy schooling a reporter in Banaras. I'm putting the link in the description, so please check it out. The video is in Hindi where this reporter asked him this boy, what he would like to be when he grows up. And he responds, he'd like to be an IS officer and serve the society. When, what he would prefer to have, a temple or a school. He said, I would rather be in a classroom. Adding that God has not blessed us. God will not give us anything, but education will. And then we will study and we will get a job. And there's a lot more to this exchange, which I'm not going to ruin with English translation. So please go and watch it. I love that boy's confidence. It truly is worth a watch. And anyway, that was our show this week. Thank you so much for joining us on Press Decode. You can catch us every Thursday on the IBM Podcast Network. And guys, please remember, don't let the news give you the blues.